God, we are grateful for the ways that you've made yourself known to each of us individually, that we are able to not just say, we know what you've done in the past, we know that you are good, but that we can claim your goodness as our story. So God, as we continue in worship this morning, as we come to your word, would you keep filling us with memories of your goodness, of your faithfulness, not just in the world, but to us, that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would be drawn to praise you. In Jesus' name. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah Nielsen, and I am the adult discipleship pastor here at the bridge. And today we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. Now, for those of you who have not been with us for a while, I just want to summarize three important things for you to know as we read the passage today. Number one, and this is a big one, okay? Jesus died and was raised from the dead, right? Amen. That's a big thing to know as we come to the book of Acts in general and to our passage today. Number two, there were Jewish people who became followers of Jesus, and they're trying to tell others, both Jewish people and non-Jewish people, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And number three, there's a lot of disagreement among the Jewish people about what non-Jewish people who believe in the resurrection need to do in response to this good news. Okay, so that's a very brief and short summary, but that should get you caught up. Um, and, and now I'm going to ask William Barjabo to read our passage for us today from Acts 15. Amen. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts chapter 15 from verses 1 through 21. A certain people came down from Judea and Antioch, and then were teaching the believer, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into ship dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas was appointed alone with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and the elders about the question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Peninsula and Samaria, they thought, they too has, uh, sorry for that, I read that over, they thought how on their way, and as they traveled through Peninsula and Samaria, they thought how, the Gentile has been converted. The news made all of the believers was very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God has done to them. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belongs to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentile must be circumcised and required to keep the Lord of Moses. The apostles and the elder met to consider this question. After much decision, Peter got up and addressed them. Brethren, you know that some time ago God made a choice among us, and the Gentile must hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, God, who know the heart, showed 
they accepted, I mean, God who knows the heart, he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just as he told us, he did, he did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified the hearts by faith. Verse 10. Now then, why, did, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of Gentile a yoke that neither we nor our ancestor have been able to obey? 11. No. We believe it through the grace of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are saved just as they are. Verse 12. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. Verse 13. When they finished, Jim spoke up. Brethren, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first invented, as God first invented to choose a people from the name from the Gentile. The word of the prophet are in agreement with his. As it is written, often this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its reign and I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. Who does these things? Things know for no longer for long ago, sorry. And it and it, it, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Verse 20. Instead, we should write. Of them telling them to abstain from the full from the full polluted by others from fornication from sexual immorality sorry and from the meat of the strangled animals and from blood 21 the last verse for the Lord of Moses has been preached in every city from the eastern from the earlier time and is read in the synagogue of Every Sabbath. That ends the words of the law. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Willem. So when I was in seminary, uh, I took a leadership class. It's one of the required classes for being a pastor. And the professor that I had was notorious for just handing the students a list full of concepts to memorize. Uh, and then he would quiz us and give us a massive test at the end on this big list of concepts. And then the class was basically just running these concepts through case studies. Uh, it was a pretty effective way to learn, actually. But one of the concepts that stuck with me was a concept called competing commitments. It basically means that there are usually a number of good values that are in competition with one another in any given scenario. Uh, as a leader, he said, you're going to have to prioritize between a lot of good things. It's one of the hardest parts of leadership and one of the most common parts of leadership. Like, you want to steward the resources of an organization well and be cautious about overspending, but you also want to invest resources to support effective programs. That's competing commitments. This is a concept that I'm guessing you're familiar with, too, in your day-to-day -day lives. Like, for example, you have a child who wants to play three different sports, uh, but you also want to have time as a family and to not go crazy in your life all the time. 
Um, that is also a competing commitment. These are good things that compete with each other. And leadership means trying to honor these different values, but ultimately making a decision that will probably give weight to one value more than the other, right? And in this passage today, I think we're getting a front row seat to some of the competing commitments in the early church. Now, maybe you don't see it that way, because I think that when we read passages in Acts as Gentiles or non-Jewish followers of Jesus, we can read all of our assumptions into the text that would not have been how the first century Jewish readers would experience things. Particularly, and I think we sort of have Paul to thank for this, but particularly we can read passages about the Jewish people wanting Gentile converts to keep the law and get circumcised, and then we can turn the Jews into the villains of the story, right? We can tell this story like the Jews were trying to force believers to live under this harsh, strict requirement of the law, just like they did to keep them bound up in chains and to keep them from being free, right? But I don't think that that is how early Jewish Christians would read this story. In fact, I read as I was preparing for this, this sermon, I read some Jewish commentators on this story. And they were um, across the board just flabbergasted that Peter would characterize circumcision and following the law as a heavy burden, right? The text said a heavy yoke, right? For them, for Jewish people, the tradition of circumcision, while sure, was physically painful, and I'm sure not fun for the men of the community, it was also a tangible reminder of God's promise to never leave and forsake his people, no matter what. And the law that was handed down by Moses was full of beauty and symbols of God's love and call to his people. They were reminders of God's faithfulness. They were pathways to engage God. Jews would not have seen these things as heavy burdens, even though Gentiles probably might have. So humor me for a minute, uh, because in the passage today, we get a window into an early church meeting, right? This is, commentators call this the Jerusalem Council. It's a church meeting. Um, and we only get to hear one side of the conversation in the passage. We only hear from Peter uh, and from James, who are arguing against circumcision. But let me... Uh, tease out a little bit what I think might have been the Jewish, the Pharisaic Jew response in this church meeting. Um, it's great that these Gentiles want to join the church, truly. I am excited they're converting, but, but Jesus never said that we should stop practicing circumcision. In fact, I remember in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Another apostle may have stood up at this point and said, look, it's obvious that God has let the Gentiles in to receive this promise. Now I'm not disputing that, but I also remember Jesus telling us not to go to the Gentiles, that he had only come for the lost sheep of Israel. And, and while he was with us, he kept the holy days and followed the law. And so if we're going to let the Gentiles in our community, shouldn't we at least ask them to live like Jesus lived? I mean, Jesus was circumcised. And another church leader may have stood up at this point and said, look, I'm all about not just forcing the Gentiles to keep the law just for the law's sake. And maybe we could loosen our grip on some of the ceremonial cleanliness laws because, let's be honest, we haven't even really been keeping those in the same way that we did since we came back from exile. But 
circumcision's pretty key. It's the one part of the law that predates God's covenant with Moses. This was an Abrahamic covenant. This is important. If we start throwing out parts of Torah like this, where does it end? It seems kind of like a slippery slope. There is rich meaning in this tradition here. We can't just throw that out. Now, I don't know if that's what was said, but I want to tell you that as I studied this passage, I'm pretty sure that's the argument I would have made in that room. Circumcision and following the law were intended to be gifts to the covenant community, and I think I would have uh, pushed back pretty hard on wanting to throw those out. See, if we assume the best of the Jesus-following Pharisees in this moment, the rest of the story hits a little bit differently. There's no longer a villain and hero story at play. This is a story about people trying to follow Jesus with different value sets at the forefront of their mind. They have competing commitments. Do we try to maintain the beauty of our tradition and keep the through line of this covenant narrative of God? Or do we let those good things go to make it easier for new people to come in? Because these are people who want to be obedient to Jesus, and they don't want to lose the rich tradition that's been handed to them. They don't want to diminish the value of what God has done in the past. They want new people to experience the good news of Jesus. They really do. But they also don't want to lose the richness of the experience that came from tradition and history. It's a conversation about competing commitments. And you have to understand that for these Jewish people, saying that new believers no longer needed to be circumcised would be like coming to the church now and saying that new believers no longer need to be baptized. God had told them to do it. It carried rich meaning, and it was God's way of reminding them that he would never let them down and he would never let them go. And to say that you don't need to keep the law anymore would sort of be like telling someone now that it's not really that important to read the Bible. These were their primary ways of engaging with God, and they came with reason and history and carried rich symbolism. But these same things that felt like gifts to the Jewish people felt like a heavy burden to the Gentiles. These things that felt like paths to God for the Jews felt like barricades to the Gentiles. And so Peter says, shouldn't our highest value be making it easy for people to come to God? Shouldn't our highest commit be, commitment be making it easy for people who are drawn to the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the kindness of our God to be in relationship with God and be welcomed into our community without requiring that they swallow whole our entire tradition and history and even the most important covenant theology that goes with it. For Peter, and eventually for the whole council in this story, this value of making it easy for new people to come to God is the one that seems like the Holy Spirit is inviting the church to prioritize. In fact, if we would have read on in the passage today, the apostles write a letter to the Gentiles, and the, the phrase that they put in the letter is, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we should not lay on you any more burden than these four things. Then we come to the part of the passage that has been giving me gray hairs all week, okay? All month, really. I've been sitting with this passage for a while because it makes the passage a little more complicated. Because if you'll notice... 
the council doesn't send everyone away and say, okay, so Gentiles who enter in can do whatever they want with no boundaries. That's not, that's not what the passage says. It says, so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual, sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. But it doesn't say why those are the essential things, which is crazy-making. Um, and scholars don't even agree on the reason for this. Some scholars say that those four things are chosen because they are the practices most associated with temple worship of idols. For them, the restrictions are in place to make sure that the Gentiles are not tempted back into worshiping other gods. And these would be the four things that would keep them from idolatry. Other scholars say that these four things are chosen because the Gentiles are called to remember that they're still living in community alongside Jewish people and that they should live in a way that's not unnecessarily offensive to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Which honestly is not that convincing of an argument to me because if that was the value, the thing that's most offending the Jews is that they're not getting circumcised. So maybe, I don't know, scholars uh, disagree. And virtually none of the scholars think that this is the list because it's a timeless representation of the most important parts of being a Christ follower. They agree that there was something contextually important about these requirements. So if you like a rare steak every now and again, you're probably good. Um, here's what I think we should take away from this list. There may genuinely be some things to do uh, for people who want to follow Jesus to change to mark their conversion and faith. There are some important boundaries, but the list is probably a lot shorter than we think it is. There were four things. And I think that the bigger question for us as a church today out of this passage is what good things do we want to tack on as requirements to people who want to know God? What good things, like circumcision and following the law in this case, would we want to make sure are included in being a Christ follower that may actually feel like heavy burdens to people who are curious about God? I remember talking to one of our longtime church members a while back, and she told me about how when she was a kid, uh, her church uh, forced her, the students to learn the Heidelberg Catechism, to memorize the whole thing. They taught through it in their Sunday school class. And she talked about how she kind of hated it when she was a kid, but she was so grateful for that experience now because she sat on her hospital bed and she could remember and hear the words of Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one wash over her, right? What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and on and on, right? Because she had experienced that richness and the beauty and the deep meaning of that catechism, she was deeply convinced that we should go back to teaching that catechism in our student ministry, now, she's not wrong about the richness and the beauty of that catechism. I myself am grateful that I have it memorized. It is beautiful, and it's meaningful and important, but it's, it's not what's essential, right? Belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, opening a path to freedom and life for all of creation is what's essential. And the apostles in the early church call us in the passage today to make sure that that is our first commitment amongst a list of other really good commitments. 
Our first value should be making sure that people have easy access to the good news and remove barriers that get in the way of that. So, we find ourselves in the church, the global capital C church, and here at the bridge, often in this conversation about competing commitments. We have a lot of beautiful, rich traditions. We have a lot of practices and beliefs that have come about for really good reasons, that have theological richness behind them. And we have memories of the pathways to God that have been comforting and helpful to us. And then we can quickly slip into wanting to make those things essential for others. We don't want them to miss out on the richness and the beauty of them, right? Things like attending church on Sunday morning. Things like coming to Sunday school classes at the church. Things like worshiping in a certain way. Or bringing their kids to programming or agreeing with our church about how we interpret the Bible on a whole host of issues like infant baptism, or LGBTQ inclusion, or the importance of tithing, right? We make these essential, but they can become barriers for people. And all of these things do have good reasons behind them, deep meaning and wisdom behind them, just like circumcision had for the Jews. But could these meaningful traditions make it difficult for people who didn't grow up in the church or who have left the church to come to know God? And maybe a bigger question, could these things obstruct the grace of Jesus as the only path to life? If so, then I pray that personally and as a church, we might be willing for the sake of those who don't yet know God to surrender our hold on even the good things the beautiful things that for others are heavy burdens and barriers so that people might be able to encounter the path to wholeness and freedom open to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. God, as I prepared this sermon, I found myself grateful for the depth and beauty of your story, of your covenant faithfulness to Israel, of your covenant faithfulness to Meredith Drive Reformed Church and the bridge, of your covenant faithfulness to me and to all of us in the room who can tell our own stories of how God has drawn us to himself over and over again. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us wisdom that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and keep Jesus' story as the central thing that guides us as a church. And I pray that if there are things that are heavy burdens and barriers for those who would otherwise come to know your goodness and your faithfulness and freedom from uh, death, would you show us, would you open our eyes, would you... Give us an experience where we can together say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we move in this direction for the sake of others coming to know the life offered in Jesus. In your name, amen.